0: I trust this little concert is over, huh? I mean, what does Pee-wee stand for anyway? Brain size? <laughs> I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me sticks to you. I just wanted to let you know about my study group. Oh, don't be a buddy, daddy, I'll be your study buddy. I'm about to embark on one of the great challenges of my scientific career. This work right here is going to change history. I think this is going to be our greatest mission.
1: I don't have time to study! I'll never get into Stanford!
0: I got big plans for you tonight. I got maps, I got charts. I'm going to see you through this because my credibility is on the line.
1: It's at this point that you'll want to start taking
0: notes. Welcome to the Sitcom Study, the podcast where we contemplate the TV shows we grew up with and search for the truth and wisdom within the tropes and cliches. And today we are talking not about a trope or a cliche, but a man a very very silly man who we all have come to know and love over the last several decades what are we talking about today amy
1: i know you ever what am I? yeah
0: <laughs> yeah we are talking paul rubens and his various guest appearances on sitcoms uh-huh. uh, do you want to get it all out now or do you want to sprinkle it throughout the uh, throughout the show so
1: funny i forgot to laugh
0: Great. Okay. All right. She's taking a bow. I'm done. This all started because, uh, of course, we lost Mr. Rubens uh, a few weeks ago. He he passed tragically. And, uh, you know, of course, there was stuff all over the internet. When you're flipping through social media, you're seeing all this stuff about Pee Wee Herman. And I came across this still from Mork and Mindy of Robin Williams and Paul Rubens standing next to each other in costume in this episode. And it just struck me like, oh yeah, of course. I didn't know that that Paul Rubens did a guest spot on Mork and Mindy, but that makes perfect sense. He's a perfect counterpart to Robin Williams. We started thinking about how he had that arc on Murphy Brown and stuff. And sure enough, he's popped up in many sitcoms over the years. And it just seemed like a nice kind of change of pace to talk about him.
1: Yeah. I think just being the age that we are, we have a lot of memories of Paul Rubens as Pee-wee Herman. I de- like I was a huge Pee-wee Herman's Playhouse kid. I was not necessarily a cartoons kid. Like Saturday morning getting up and like you know must watch TV kind of appointment viewing wasn't really my thing. My brother uh, is a little bit younger than me, and the Saturday morning cartoons was his thing. So we watched kind of like whatever he wanted. But when Pee Wee's Playhouse came out, that like I was like, nope, we're watching this. Like, I don't care what other what other channel you want to be on, what other cartoons you wanna watch, that's fine. But we're getting out the pots and pans and the spoons, and we're gonna bang on them and be really loud, and we're gonna watch this crazy guy. So my favorite TV show up until that point was The Muppet Show. When I was little, that was one of those things that like my parents let me stay up past my bedtime when I was really little to watch The Muppet Show. Even, you know, I'm talking like two, three years old, you know, that was my favorite show. And so I think The Muppet Show into Pee Wee Herman's Playhouse, that absurdist kind of raucous humor has always been my bag since infancy, it seems.
0: Yes. Absurdist is definitely... An aspect of it. Another aspect of it is camp. And this is what makes Pee-Wee Herman such an interesting and mystifying presence to me, you know. So to just sort of back up a little. I liked Pee-Wee a lot also as a kid. I liked the Pee-Wee's Playhouse show. I liked the movies. I always knew that Pee-Wee predated. Pee Wee's Playhouse and the movies, even. And he had started as this sort of like grassroots thing, and that it was this stage show that had been broadcast on HBO as a special. And I knew that it was kind of for adults. And that made Pee Wee such an interesting figure because this, this character that was so weird and silly and goofy. I I always had this knowledge that somehow this began as a thing in a theater somewhere that adults went to watch. And I didn't quite understand how it ended up as a thing on my TV screen. And what I'll say now is that I still don't totally understand the joke with Pee-wee. Like, he's such an interesting, one-of-a-kind persona that you don't quite get, is this ironic? If so, how ironic is it? The whole thing is just a little hard to nail down.
1: Well, it's subversive, right? So similarly to The Muppets, that's why I like drew that comparison. Both of them are shows that are, you know, kind of in their inception written for adults and have adult sort of humor, if not like overt sexual innuendo, but definitely have jokes so that like parents could watch along with this and it wouldn't be annoying. But most of it is so wholesome that it's not offensive in any way, but it is subversive, right? Mm -hmm. So it has that thing of, even if you tried to nail down exactly what Pee Wee Herman is. I think his whole thing was that I'm not trying to teach anybody anything. And I don't want to think about it too much. And I don't want to overplan. Like this guy should be random and abstract. And that's how we're going to Play it and so there are certain you know kind of you know the movements and his sort of catchphrases and little things that he like the beats of the story that he was going to do for the most part it comes out of improv right and it comes out of that interaction in the moment with other actors whether they're characters playing chairs <laughs> you know or their uh, faces on a TV screen or they're you know Cowboys coming in, like all of the above.
0: Yeah, I think definitely a big part of it is who he surrounds himself with. And I think that plays into this larger understanding that I'm sort of beginning to come to that this is also a time, we're talking primarily the 80s when Pee Wee is sort of rising to prominence. I don't know what Rubens' personal predilections were, but he clearly likes to surround himself similar to like that John Waters camp community with weirdos and people like Little Richard who pops up in his Christmas special, people who were considered deviants in one way or another. And I guess maybe what I'm realizing is this crazy energy that he's bringing to these stage shows in the buttoned up eighties. Uh, there's all of these strange peripheral oddities that we can't totally like present to you as they are, but we can put on a bunch of weird cowboy and mailman costumes and you know maybe do a few lines of coke and, and get this <laughs> crazy you know set and just all kind of like go out on stage and be really weird and manic and silly and you know maybe the mainstream isn't ready for all of us but we're going to we're going to give them a taste of our sort of counterculture strangeness yeah. and maybe that's Part of what it's about.
1: I I think that is a lot of what it's about. I think some of the words that like you use the word counterculture, I would say punk. Mm -hmm. Um, I use the word subversive. That's exactly what the Pee Wee Herman whole universe was trying to be avant-garde.
0: Yeah. So to kind of very basically track this chronology... Paul Rubens invents the character of Pee Wee Herman in the Groundlings in the early 80s, right? In the
1: 70s, late okay. 70s, yeah, I think.
0: So he's coming up with Phil Hartman, he's buddies with him, and this character starts gaining traction. They start putting on this show, this Pee Wee Herman show, at the Groundlings, and then eventually at the Roxy Theatre, uh, it becomes more and more of a thing. They film it for HBO, and then in the mid-80s, you get in, I think, 85 or 86, or maybe 86 or 87, the one-two punch of Pee-Wee's Big Adventure, the movie, which is Tim Burton's first directorial movie and mainstream America's first taste of Pee-Wee Herman as this the main character of this movie, where he is billed as Pee-Wee Herman starring in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but also credited as Paul Rubens and so and so as the writer and maybe the producer. So, from the start, there's this weird sort of like he kind of is Pee Wee, like he's kind of hiding that he even is another person, but not really. And so that happens. The TV show happens a year later Pee Wee's Playhouse, which, like you said, we both watched and loved, was a fixture. And so, what we're going to talk about today is in the years that followed, sometimes as Pee-wee, sometimes as himself, but definitely thanks to, I think we can say pretty much exclusively thanks to his Pee-wee Herman character, he became this sort of -of one-of-a-kind pop culture presence that would be utilized. Let's give him the lineup. What are the shows we're watching?
1: All right. So we're going to start with Morg and Mindy, Season 4, Episode 7, Long Before We Met. Then 227, Season 2, Episode 15, Toyland. Murphy Brown, Season 7, Episode 21, The Good Nephew. 30 Rock, Season 1, Episode 12, Black Tie.
0: Yeah, so if we didn't have enough to talk about with Paul Rubens and his whole deal, Mork and Mindy, we're getting our first taste of Robin Williams as a sitcom presence. So... I'm going to say, just for the sake of, of economy, I don't even think we, we should like address Robin Williams as, as a whole career, per se, because there's just so much to dig into there. What is your experience with Mork and Mindy?
1: So I, up until we watched this episode, I would have told you I was a big Mork and Mindy fan. It was one of those ones that was on reruns. I loved it. It was, you know, I thought... Robin Williams as Mork, Nanu Nanu, was hilarious, and I watched it. Well, then we watched this episode, and I realized I must have only seen syndicated and rerun episodes from, like, seasons one and two and maybe into three, because we're in season four, and they're married, and they have a kid and they age backwards, so the kid is Jonathan Winters? Did you He's confirm- like this grown man?
0: Yes, their child is a 57-year-old man. Did you confirm that that's because they age backwards? Yes. Okay, that's not just your hypothesis. Not just
1: my hypothesis. I confirmed, yes, they age backwards, which is why their child is, you know, like a, a an aging Jonathan Winters. It's a good gag. It is a good gag. And it was really fun because you've got his improvisational skills and silliness- now co like commingling with Robin Williams' improvisational skills and silliness, So it was really it that was fun, but yeah, up until we watched this episode, I would have told you, I know Mark and Mindy, I love Mark and Mindy, yay, you know, Mork from work, Nanu, Nanu, whatever, and no, this this whole storyline of the child and marriage and all of this, like completely, I don't remember any of that. But like you said, all of that aside, this episode is all about. A high school reunion. Yeah. <laughs> another one of our favorite sitcom tropes.
0: Yeah, uh, that's all true. But just to slow down for a second, in case you're a little younger out there maybe and don't don't know about all this, Morgan Mindy is another Happy Days spinoff. Yes. So we've got overlapping tropes we've already covered here because it's another class reunion episode. It's another Happy Days spinoff. And this is another weird case like they did with... Slimer and Beetlejuice in the 80s of when you make your your spin-off TV show you turn the bad guy into a good guy, right? In in the original Happy Days episode
1: Slimer and Ghostbusters you mean?
0: No, well, yes. Slimer from Ghostbusters and Beetlejuice from Beetlejuice. There was a show about Beetlejuice? There's an animated TV show, a Saturday morning TV show. Oh, see, another many, Saturday
1: morning cartoon I didn't know. Many
0: watch. 80s children will remember this, where Beetlejuice and Lydia are friends, despite the fact that in the movie, he, he tries to make her his child bride. Yeah, forces
1: her to marry him.
0: Yes, oh, he's a straight-up villain. In the show, they were friends, and he's a good guy. So similarly, maybe they got the idea from this, because in Happy Days, Mork from Ork showed up as you know one of their more outlandish gimmicky episodes as an alien who challenges fonzie we we didn't watch this one so this i'm just going purely off the dome here but he challenges fonzie to some sort of contest or something and he's i wouldn't say he's like sinister and and nefarious but he's an antagonist you know Mork from orc is is kind of the bad guy of the episode But uh, Robin Williams being who he is, Gary Marshall being who he is, everybody smelled money and everyone loved this character and they made Mork and Mindy. And so it's, you know, it's like mad about you if Paul Reiser was an alien.
1: Right. But at first they aren't married. Like there's what I remember from, you know, my very sketchy memory apparently he like landed you know somewhere like in her house or whatever whatever and then like the whole beginning the whole first season is like them falling in love and him like fish out of water story but anyway morgan mindy it's it's a lovely little you know drop in anytime kind of throwback show particularly if you want to watch robin williams just with free reign so uh, midway through the first season they realize that the Funniest bits and the best bits of the show were when he was improvising. So the scripts in all the later seasons just had chunks that said Robin does his thing and they like wouldn't even write parts of scenes. And then when Jonathan Winters came on in the last season, same, same, they'd be like Robin and Jonathan do their thing.
0: Yeah. And so again, Paul Rubens being a guest star on the show made perfect sense. I was wondering if where they were going to go with it was that he turned out to be like a fellow alien because I could totally imagine, you know, Robin Williams beating out Paul Rubens in the audition for this. Like they're about the same age, the same I think both of them are too singular to say the same style of comedy or the same vibe because both of them really have their own vibes.
1: Yeah, but different, but there are things that are similar, right?
0: Absolutely. And you see in the first few moments of that Pee Wee stage show that we were talking about from the early 80s, it has very much the same energy as that unleashed Robin Williams thing where, again... Looks like he did a line of blow before he came out on stage. He starts pulling out props from a bag and just kind of riffing and yelling things. And it's exactly the same stuff that we see Robin Williams doing at the beginning of this. He's singing and dancing and throwing himself all over the place. And it's a style of humor that I frankly find a little exhausting now. But it's one of those things the same way in the 40s, you know, they, You could watch the horror movies at that time and they thought it was scary to talk about someone being a vampire because it was a different time and it's just, you know, a different audience. And I think similarly... Guys being so silly like this was just funny at this time.
1: Manic dudes, like people that are not stoic because we're yes. so used to these like, you know, war veterans that are like, I killed so I don't speak.
0: Yeah. Young Bill Murray, young Tom Hanks, same thing. But Robin and Paul Rubens definitely like next level you know, manic energy.
1: Right. So we go, um, we are at the reunion and Paul Rubens is at the, you know, welcome table, kind of handing out the name tags and whatnot. And he is doing the Pee Wee voice, like almost exactly. Like the only thing we're missing is the sometimes when Pee Wee goes like, and like does that sort of like weird kind of growly thing. That's all we're missing. He... Did a couple of, you know, like that kind of laugh. And he was doing the talking out of the side of his mouth thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like he was doing that. So it was like, I mean, I would say nearly indistinguishable from Pee Wee, except for no, you know, uh, pale white makeup, rouge. And well, that's the the thing. Right. He's not in that look.
0: In some ways it's like the best of both worlds. I wrote down Paul Rubens looks great here. Like he's doing peewee, but he's dressed in this kind of hip seventies way, like I don't want to overstate it, not that hip, but he's dressed like a normal person. And he's playing sort of like it's almost like Screech, I think, because it's he's a nerd. He's like this goofy nerdy guy, but he's also like weirdly sort of high profile in the world of this high school class yes. like he's kind of in charge of organizing things and stuff so you kind of get the impression like he's he's sort of a main character if you will of this of this high school class even though he's he's a little bit dweeby.
1: Well, and so everybody refers to him as, like, the creep, right? Like, Mm -hmm. he would follow, he would always invite everybody to the library, he was always, like, following people around, but that's kind of established because this is, like, 1981, they're at the reunion, right? But what you're talking about with, like, the cool 70s garb, so Mork gets jealous of Mindy's, like, not even rekindling, but just like, oh, hey, you know, seeing this guy Steve that was her boyfriend Friend and Steve is like, uh, he's the lieutenant governor of Wyoming yes, now. They have a lot
0: of fun with that concept of the lieutenant governor. Those, right. those stupid titles that people have.
1: And so he's, you know, he's high up in politics. He's still like tall and handsome, you know, whatever. Um, and he's still a douchebag, but like we don't find that out till later. So he's like, hey, you know, can we have a dance? And more you know, the the reunion is kind of just a blip, right? It's only that one scene or maybe two yeah, scenes. Yeah, it
0: establishes, it establishes a lot in a short amount of time. We right. I mean, meet Paul Rubens' character, which is, you know, that's why we're talking about this, but it's ultimately a little sort of neither here nor there. It establishes the romantic rivalry, like you're saying. We get that great, trope from the old times of the men asking each other for permission to dance with the women right you gotta love that (laughs) yeah
1: yeah can i uh can i steal your lady away from you would you mind if we dance
0: But yeah, it establishes all those relationships, but yeah, pretty, pretty quickly. And then we're sort of back home and there's this lingering jealousy.
1: Right. So Mork is jealous of this like previous relationship and the fact that, you know, Mindy had a nice time kind of dancing with him and reconnecting, but not in any sort of way that was like over the top. And she wasn't indicating any more interest beyond just like, oh, I was at the reunion, so it was nice to see these people and now done. Right. What well, Mork has it all in his mind that no, you know, I have, to, I'm going to go back in time. So we get our, the first of two Wizard of Oz parallels that we're going to get, or Wizard Wizard of Oz parodies that we're going to get.
0: That's pretty funny. But I just have to ask, like when we watched Boy Meets World a few weeks ago, we happened to stumble upon the first use of their time-traveling microwave or whatever that they just threw into the story blithely, like that was a normal thing. (laughs) <laughs> is, this a, is this a common strategy for Mork to travel through time? Not he, that I remember. I mean, the reason why he's using this is just jealousy, like to satisfy his curiosity. So it's not even like something that would necessitate time travel. So I just wondered if it was well, something.
1: Okay. So they set it up a little better than that. They he There was like some conversation with either him and Jonathan Winters or him and Mindy about, I think it was with Mindy. And she was like, you know, Mork, I wasn't in love really until I met you. Like I didn't know until I knew you, you know, so... You know, whatever, and then and then their son, who's you know, like as we said, a sixty-year-old man, says, you know, well, something to the effect of, if you would, you know, if if she had met you first, then it would never have been an issue, and that's what triggers Mork to be like, oh, okay, let me see if that's true, and he says, oh, I've been holding on to these for a little while because I've been, you know, wanting to use them for something, so it's like he has these. Liberace's slippers, Liberace's red slippers that are actual like slippers um, <laughs> and that are sparkly red that he apparently has just been like holding on to as like a magical object or something for some time um and makes a joke like i stole them off some old lady and then he's like ah get you baby pretty you know like does a bunch of that kind of you know riffing puts them on clicks his heels goes back to 1971 and that's when we get paul rubens in this awesome like wow. uh austin powers coat with the, the little like short collar. What do they call that kind of collar? And it's Purple and he's wearing like a um, like a prince medallion. I wrote
0: it looks like a combination of Prince and Sergeant Pepper.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. He looks especially dapper in that getup. But yeah, all of this—it's not to you know undo something that that must be undone or something. It's all just for Mork to get a sense of what their relationship was.
1: We also know, I mean, and this could just be like you know continuity, whatever you universe errors but if they age in reverse and he first appeared in the 50s in Happy Days as a younger person than he is now
0: yeah the fact that Happy Days is set in the 50s makes no sense and I did not think of that at all until just now similar to how I didn't think of it when I was saying that that Chachi became Charles even though it took place in the 50s to me the question is isn't he messing with the space-time continuum and screwing up their whole history by going back in time only a few years and meeting her? Like, isn't she going to remember several years later when she meets Orc for real, the way she did in their normal history? Aren't you the same guy that showed up at my high school dance pretending to be a Russian, by the way? We didn't mention that. Uh, like, isn't that going to cause all kinds of weird rifts and? paradoxes
1: i also kind of wondered if it was one of these dip in and out sort of fantasy things right because i had the same question and then at the end of the episode when she comes home from work and she you know is like oh you know i'm glad you know i'm sorry you felt je- felt jealous and i just want you to know you know and she's trying to like make up for all of it and she makes mention of you know i've i think I've been waiting for you all this time, right? So she says it just like that in a way that it's like, does she remember or does she only have this weird sort of shadow memory that she has met him before? Like they're
0: hinting at that.
1: Right. So I thought maybe that's to to your point about the space-time continuum. But also, you know, even though we're not seeing it, maybe the... I'm you know maybe he's like Doctor Who, and when he travels back in time or when he does you know he re- like he reincarnates and he looks different, or even though to us yeah. we know who he is,
0: yeah, well, and like we said, he's posing as a Russian exchange student for literally no reason. He's working at complete cross purposes to what he's trying to do, which is gain admittance to this high school dance when he doesn't go to the high school.
1: Well, and Pee Wee Herman, or not Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens isn't going to let him in to the dance because he, again, was like manning the table. Yeah. And he
0: doesn't recognize him. And he doesn't
1: recognize So he wasn't going to let him in. And so he says, oh, you don't recognize me because I'm a Russian foreign exchange student. I just started. I don't have an ID yet. Like That was his like quick thinking let me get out of this no but what i'm saying
0: is it is a terrible plan (laughs) why wouldn't you say oh yeah i don't go here that my girlfriend does she's she's over there or whatever it's just like it's the same thing we were talking about with mr ed where you have these guys that love to do the funny voices and that's why we love them so it's like of course we're gonna he's gonna do the thing that draws the most attention to himself, even when it doesn't necessarily suit his purposes. But in any case, he's in disguise, and so for whatever reason, yeah, it's like he kind of goes back in time and just has has this little episode where he what he 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 sort of stirs up trouble and it almost makes her her douchey boyfriend kind of show his true colors, right?
1: Yes. I mean, there's already some tension with her douchey boyfriend and he's like telling her that she shouldn't go to college and that she shouldn't try to be a journalist because women don't, you know, can't do that anyway. And, you know, all of these things. And she's just kind of like, you know, okay. I mean, she has this sort of feeling that you know well he's he's the best so like i should kind of be with him even if, and and i should listen to him like he's really smart and so if he's putting me down i should kind of listen to him and then but you just kinda, sort of see her being like yeah but i have these ideas and i think maybe i also want to uh, trust myself or whatever anyway but then she um meets mork and he asks again he asks steve if she can You know, if she's allowed to dance with him and he says no, but then he gets called outside by Paul Rubens. Yeah. So Paul Rubens, again, he's like the he's like the high school gadfly. He just, you know, appears in all these different ways. And he's such a magnetic and charismatic actor that even though he has this small part, you like you just keep watching him. He's yeah. very funny, you know. And like I said, he's doing almost the pee-wee voice. So y- you know, that was gonna draw you in no matter what. But yeah, he says there's like boys drinking in the men's bathroom. There's guys drinking in the bathroom and they won't let me in. But if you go, they'll let me come and watch. Like if I show up with you. So he like wants to go hang out with the cool kids who are drinking in the bathroom. But he's not going to drink. He just wants to watch. Cause, uh, and they, so that's his ticket in. So Steve pieces out and is like, oh, honey, I'd invite you too, except for it's in the men's room, so he can't come. And so pieces out and, and goes. And so then Mork's like, want to dance now? And she's like, oh, I shouldn't. And then she's like, well, OK.
0: Yeah. And they have like a nice sort of like sensitive conversation where Mork is still doing – his Russian thing, but just like being nice and kind of like connecting with her, even so. And Mork is sort of satisfied. Does she actually break up with the boyfriend or just kind of comes to understand like, yeah, he's kind of a dick?
1: So she has this lovely dance with Mork and she asks him about being a journalist. And he's like, oh, I think you would be great at it because obviously he knows her as a journalist and knows that that's what she's going to do. That is her job like in, you know, 1981. So he's like, yeah, you'll be great. And she just sort of kind of takes all of that to heart. And when Steve comes back in and they win prom king and queen, and he makes some like another obnoxious comment, she's like, you know what? I hope you, he was like, this is the best night ever. And you know, like it can't, it won't get better than this. And she's just kind of like, this is what it is. Like, this is high school. Like it's going to be great. And, um, and I hope you're enjoying it. Cause this is our last dance and our last date. And then she walks away from him in their like prom king and queen dance and invites Mork to dance with her.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of the stuff we were talking about last time with our will-they-won't-days. He's being a little bit of a Roy from, uh, from the office. And yeah, and so Mork can travel back to his present time and be kind of satisfied, like everything checks out and I'm not jealous anymore. Again, I don't think it was the best use of his time travel but uh yeah, I noticed there was no part where he talks to his leader. That was part of the kind of iconography of Mork and Mindy, I thought, was that he kind of walked into this dark space and looked up and kind of spoke to his leader at the end. Oh, yeah.
1: I, um, I remember that. Maybe kind of like, that's the, you
0: know. Yeah, the season four, switching it up or yeah. something. But yeah, in terms of how this fits into the Paul Rubens thing, I think, like you said, he's doing his peewee thing because... Pee Wee Herman is not a character that the world is familiar with yet. He's still trying to sort of break into the biz, basically. Right. This is a a big step for him. And so he's kind of throwing everything at it. And so I don't think he's thinking like, well, gee, let me save this for my Pee Wee Herman show or whatever. He's just thinking like, well, this would be a good use for my wacky, nerdy Pee Wee Herman character. In
1: any way that I can break in. This is the same season that he auditioned for SNL. Mm-hmm. Um, and he didn't get cast. Later, Phil Hartman would get cast, and he would go on. Pee-wee himself would go on to host uh, SNL at some point.
0: So, yeah, I guess that does it for Mork and Mindy, and he's going to be coming to things from a different angle when we get to our next show. Two, two, seven.
1: season two, episode fifteen, Toyland. This show is great.
0: This is definitely the least knowledge I've ever had about a TV show going into covering it for the podcast. I think this is the first time that we've just straight up never heard of this.
1: Well, so here's the thing. I knew Jack Hay. Remember when we did the Sister Sister episode and I was like, oh, yeah, Jack Hay, she's famous from something. She had like a sitcom or maybe she was on the Jeffersons. 227 was the sitcom. That's what she's famous from. So, like, I knew of her, but I did not remember 227 as a show that I watched. I just knew of Jack Hay, the character. And the connection to the Jeffersons is that the other main character, or I mean, so there was like some drama behind the scenes with these, with Jack Hay and um, what's her name? Marla Gibbs, who plays the main character on 227. Uh, Marla Gibbs was the Jeffersons' housekeeper the like one that always had the quips and everything. This was her show that she did after the Jeffersons ended and she started it and produced it. So I just like, I had all of that muddied together in my very spotty memory.
0: So very quickly, what is the premise of this show? It's a handful of ladies that, live together? What? What is the deal? So it's
1: like uh, 227 is like an apartment building, right? It's the address of this apartment building and I, I think they're in D.C. Yeah, they're in D.C. So they live in like the same neighborhood and it's all of these women and sometimes they're husbands or family members or whatever that are, you know, housewives or working mothers or working women or whatever and they live in the building and they're friends. And so Marla Gibbs, she's like the main character character and then she's got her husband and their daughter is in her very first television appearance, appearance Regina King.
0: Yeah, Regina King who is still on the way up I would argue. I mean, she's in The Watchmen HBO series. She's in all you know, she's got a huge movie career now. She was Probably a couple of years after this, uh, gonna start appearing in the John Singleton movies like Boys in the Hood and Poetic Justice and stuff in the nineties. Yeah, she
1: like Regina King is a is an icon at this point. And it was yeah. just wild to see her as this like preteen.
0: <laughs> yeah. So the premise for this episode is that every year they get toys for like the kids at the hospital or something. Right. They done a, or yeah, they'd
1: done like a fund drive, like a fundraiser, and they didn't raise a lot of money. So they were like, well, that's okay. We'll just go and perform for the yes. kids.
0: I just, we have to stop on this for a second because I was just like, These kids are going to riot. Like, I just thought it was hilarious when she says, I've got a great idea. Instead of buying toys for the kids, why don't we go down and entertain them? Just the idea of like, all right, kids, the bad news is no toys for Christmas. The good news, four or five 40-something-year-old women are going to come down and entertain you. Like, what the hell does that mean? (laughs)
1: Well, it all comes to naught because they do decide to spend what little money they get on some toys and they go down to the toy store and it's closed. So, but they see an employee so they're banging on the door and um the guy lets them in and is like, "Okay, okay, you know, go ahead, you know, as long as you shop quickly. Like you have 3 minutes, you know, pick up as much stuff as you can." and then they were kind of going slowly and he was like being really shady and he was like look just if whatever you grab whatever you can in 3 minutes and get out of here it's all yours for free you don't even have to pay
0: yeah and just to clarify you're saying employee like giving them credit as though it seems like he is an employee it is obvious to us the viewer immediately That this is a robber burglarizing the store. So it wasn't obvious to
1: me immediately. And also, I think it turns out that he's not burglarizing that store. He's using that store to like drill through the wall into whatever is next door, which we never actually see or find out like what he is trying to steal. We just keep seeing him pop up and say, I'm going to shoot you and wave a gun around, but never do it. Now,
0: part of the reason why I knew this guy was suspicious is because he's played by Terry Kaiser, who always played douchebags in the 80s. He's most famously Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's. He also plays the creepy psychiatrist in Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. So (laughs) he was just always this guy. He's always
1: playing a bad guy. A
0: guy with a mustache who's like, yeah, a shitty, you know, father-in-law or executive or a mean teacher or something like
1: well, that. Well, so I yeah. didn't recognize him at all. He doesn't have the mustache in this. But the minute he comes on the screen, Jay goes, it's Bernie. And I was like, what? Oh, it is Bernie.
0: Yeah. So he was not necessarily... uh a celebrity at this time. But when Mr. Paul Rubens walks on stage, standing ovation. Sure, right.
1: sure. So they're in the toy store. Marla Gibbs makes a, a joke about like, oh, ha ha. You know, if I didn't know any better, I'd say you were trying to get through that wall over there and, and you know, burglarize the store next door. And he was like, all right, you know, you guys got to get in the back room, like that's it, and pulls the gun on them. And they were like, oh my goodness. And right as that happens, there's another like frantic knock at the door and camera pans over and who's there, but ha!
0: Yeah. <laughs> so he comes in in full costume this time. So this is not Paul Rubens as so-and-so. This is during that time we were talking about where he's really trying to blur the line between Paul Rubens and Pee-wee Herman and really sort of create this public persona like, I am Pee-wee and this is like a guy in the world. And so he comes in, yeah, in that full getup, doing the full voice. He announces himself as Pee-wee Herman.
1: Well, they know him as Pee-wee. They're like, Pee-wee! Yeah. They are, all of them are like, he's a celebrity already. This is 1987, so his television show is in full swing. Like, his kids show, he's there. And so that's why he was coming to the toy store. He was trying to get stuff for his live stage show, and he needed some things. And so, but like not as like you're saying the guy who plays Pee-Wee Herman in character. No, no, no. Pee-wee Herman does a show on stage and he is coming to this toy store to get things and they're dressing him addressing him as Pee-Wee and he is Pee-wee. And so he comes in and he starts picking things up and then they sort of they're trying to like get him to realize that it's bad you know that this is a bad guy. And in true peewee fashion he's like i know ever what am i you know yeah. like just being silly and like bang
0: and again when he does those things huge reactions yes. from the audience
1: raucous applause like yeah. uproarious laughter and
0: what became clear to me again talking about the sort of company that paul rubens keeps is like oh of course paul rubens and jack hay are two peas in a pod like this. I don't know for a fact how this all came to be, but I could totally see, oh, that's the connection. They, you know, they are just a couple of over the top, loud, funny, crazy weirdos that, you know, kind of gravitated towards each other. And so you totally see how she would be like, Hey Paul, stop by my TV show. Why not? You know, even the fact that it's an all black TV show in 1987 You could totally see Paul Rubens not blinking an eye about that, and you might not be able to say the same thing about various other celebrities at that time.
1: Absolutely. So Pee Wee realizes that this is like a holdup and Bernie from Weekend at Bernie's kind of shoves them all into the back room after a series of like, you know, them trying to convince him to release them and whatever. And he's like, nope, that's it. He puts him in the back room and then they try to like get away or trap him or something like that. And he's like, Oh guys, come on. And so he ties them up And that is really where the comedy in this episode starts happening. They're all in a storage room. Jack A has arrived. She wasn't there to begin with, but she was going to meet them there so that they could drive her to the mall or wherever they were going next or whatever. So she arrives and immediately gets brought into the back room. So she's tied up. To Marla. They're tied up together, right, on a box. Mm -hmm. And then the husband, played by Hal Williams, he's tied up like around a pole. So his arms are like tied in front of him around this pole. And Pee Wee is tied to a rocking horse.
0: Yeah. And talking about the subversive sense of humor, at some point he says the line, I was in the Beaver Scouts for three years. Guys used to tie me up all the time. You know, just that subtle little, it's not all totally for kids.
1: Except for that kind of tracks, right? Like if you take it out of any type of, oh, what is this? That is oh yeah, that's the kind of kid, Pee Wee's the kind of kid who would totally get beat up and tied up and messed with yes, exactly. in Boy Scouts. But if
0: you're an adult, you could just, just everything about it, the fact that he chose Beaver Scouts, the fact that he's talking about being tied up at the same time as you're starting to get the vibe and the culture that the Boy Scouts might be a little creepy, you know, just, I feel like all of that kind of plays into a joke like that. But yeah, they're all tied up. At some point, I don't even remember the circumstances but they all start singing row row your boat and again i was just like yes this is just like peewee and jack a having a ball they
1: they absolutely were and then so the next scene we see that how williams is no longer tied around the pole he now has a bike lock and chain mm-hmm. around the pole and so that's when he makes the joke that he's kunta kinte because he's like he's in chains right. jack hay her whole character is she is a sex pot, right? Like she always has dates. She, everybody pays for everything for her. She has all these different men's all the time. And so she's, she is really good at seduction. So now I think at this point, Pee Wee has been able to untie himself. So he unties the two women, but he can't get Hal Williams out because he's in chains. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, they say, All right, Jack, hey, go to the door and call out to him. And so she does, and they get him in there. And then she tries to like lure him, you know, closer so they can hit him on the head with something. And Pee Wee comes out from around the corner with little like Nerf guns and a little, um, the those, like, bow and arrow suction things. Right. At
0: first, it's like he's sort of shit the bed and ruined the plan because he only has silly weapons.
1: Right. And so the first thing he does is he shoots him with the little suction cup arrow, and then he pulls out the little Nerf gun thing and is, like, trying to hit him with the balls. And it's so funny because, like, you know, just like those guns always do, it, like, keeps not... Shooting, like, he keeps misfiring. So he's, yeah. like, cranking it over and over again. And it shoots, like, one ball for every six ca- cranks. It's hilarious. And then he starts blowing bubbles at him. Uh-huh. And then... They're like, you know, like you said, oh, whatever, this isn't going to work. Blah, 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 blah. This is ridiculous. And he goes and, and then Pee Wee takes the whole bubble bottle and throws it in his face. And he's like, ah, and that's it. Then they get him in the headlock. They get him down. Yeah,
0: this is one of those, God love them, when sitcoms try to stage action, it is so <laughs> hilariously, embarrassingly That's a problem I have even in, like, real action movies sometimes when you have, like, a bad guy that's just waiting to be punched or something, you know, and it doesn't look like people are putting up the appropriate struggle. You know, Pee-wee dumps soapy water in this guy's face, which is a good idea. But then Terry Kaiser, the burglar, just stumbles directly into the clutches of the husband that, like you said, is bound with the bicycle lock or whatever. He is being so cooperative in the process of, of himself being, you know, somehow subdued by a guy who is himself locked up. But uh, they take him down and, you know, Pee-wee kind of saved the day.
1: Yeah, Pee-wee saves the day with um, a bottle full of bubbles. And they all cheer for Pee-wee. And then we go back to the apartment and finally we get Regina King. And so we come back from commercial and Pee-wee and Regina are doing the Mm -hmm. dance, the Pee-wee Herman dance. And then they present Pee-wee with a big green version of his beautiful red bike that he had in um,
0: In Pee-wee's big adventure. Yeah. I feel like this, this is a fun little kind of piece of the puzzle in terms of just sort of charting his weird career. Yep. Okay. Murphy Brown.
1: Yes, I love this show. Murphy Brown, one of those like we had one TV for a long time during my childhood. And this was one of those shows that we watched as a family. Like I think this episode in particular, it's from season seven. So 1995. Um, I would have been like in middle school, maybe early high school. But this was a show I watched with my parents. I loved Murphy Brown. I My degree in, is in broadcast journalism. Like that's what I what I got a degree in. She is just one of these iconic characters. And I'm so glad that we were able to get an episode of that show on this show because Murphy Brown is one of the ones that is stuck in streaming Limbo.
0: It is very hard to find. I feel like we've made a breakthrough. Frankly, this internet archive source that you found has a bunch of them. I will say, it is rare to find a sitcom that is truly unavailable. Even if you want to order the DVD, the first season of Murphy Brown, I think, is on DVD on Amazon, and that's it. Uh, it is pretty much impossible to watch most of these. But we did we we tracked down this one. I like Murphy Brown too. I don't think I watched it that religiously because of the time it was on at this point. I was older. I wasn't watching TV as much, but I remember liking the whole concept of it, liking the cast and everything. So we're coming to this one. This is later in the the series. And so it's interesting where Murphy and Paul Rubens find each other in the mid nineties, right? Uh, Because something kind of significant happened between the last Paul Rubens episode and this one, you can make the case that it's not that significant and it shouldn't have been a big deal. And we shouldn't be talking about it at all. But in 1990, I think maybe 91, Paul Rubens was arrested for jerking off in a in a triple X movie house basically right he went to a porn house and got arrested for indecent exposure so much about this story it just seems like the twilight zone when you consider it now because it just the idea of going to a movie theater to watch porn is just so bizarre but also This was a time before the internet and social media and everything. There there was no such thing as being canceled. There There were scandals, but this was just such an odd thing to have happened and to have the public know about. It was much, much more rare to have a public figure like this have some sort of embarrassing mishap happen that was like this, that was sexual and scintillating and that had a weird, ironic relationship to who you thought they were. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? It was just such a bizarre thing. And it really did for a while kill his career.
1: Yeah. So I think uh, the thing I would parallel it to is the Hugh Grant Um, story, right, where he was, like, getting a blowjob and got arrested because it was, like, some Uh, you know, he was like with a sex worker on the side of the road or whatever. But the difference between Paul Rubens and Hugh Grant is Hugh Grant was playing a cad in movies, right? And was like, yep, whoops, my bad. And Paul Rubens was Kiwi Herman. Like you said, he had now blurred the lines. Like, Pee Wee Herman, there was no Paul Rubens in the public eye. There was Pee Wee Herman, this character, who is the person. And
0: is also increasingly more of a children's character
1: and is exactly at this point when this arrest happened the show Wee's playhouse had already been canceled the show had run its course but there were still going to be movies and peewee was still going to this and you know as this iconic now children's television character yeah he didn't have a way to sort of separate himself And be like, oh, yeah, that was just me, you know, whatever. In the way Hugh Grant was like, yeah, who cares? Let it add to my brand. He's like, I'm a children's television show character at this point. Like, I can't, like, this can't add to my brand. So he took a step back and did some guest spots and had some things here and there. And then I guess, like, his next major big, like, movie kind of thing was in, like, 99, right?
0: Yeah. During this time, he still pretty quickly was in briefly... Batman returns as the Joker's dad. He's like in that very first scene because that's his buddy, Tim Burton. He was in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the movie, the original oh, yeah, movie. He that's had a right. fairly big part in that. And, uh, you know, that was pretty soon after this scandal. That's like 92, I think. But what you're talking about in 99 is Mystery Men. That's where he comes back as like a major... That... Movie is primarily Ben Stiller and Hank Azaria and William H Macy, but you know he's he's in the mix there. It's like you you get the sense at that point he's sort of fully like forgiven. Yeah, he's fully past it. Right, but at this time, Murphy Brown, mid nineties, this pornhouse scandal is a few years in the rearview mirror, so like you said, he's not doing Pee Wee anymore. He's just sort of like, hes he's been humbled. He's now Paul Rubin's character actor who is showing up in this and that. And it's interesting to consider, again, we keep talking about the subversive quality and the sort of counterculture company that he keeps. So Murphy Brown and Candace Bergen, that's a different kind of counterculture that's like a, it's a more buttoned up, educated, polished counterculture.
1: Yeah, Murphy Brown's whole thing is speaking truth to power, right? Like, that's what she does. She's able to get in the room. She is on a, you know, Candace Bergen is is on a TV show where she's playing a journalist. There's, you know, some great viral videos of her, like, going off and calling this lady that she's interviewing a bigot. You know what I mean? She's also
0: a grown-up hippie. It's continuing that 80s thing of the counterculture of the 60s is grown-up now.
1: And now, and So and she like in that same vein of Elise and Stephen Keaton from Family Ties. Right. She is, you know, but but again, now we're, you know, 12 years later or so. Right. Because that was early 80s. This is mid 90s. Uh, you know, Candace Bergen as as Murphy Brown, there was all of the blowback on her being a single mom and how she wasn't um, upholding family values. And a lot of the criticism came from Dan Quayle. So then there was a lot like she did an awful lot of that, you know, making fun of Dan Quayle kind of being an imbecile and not knowing how to spell potato and whatever. But what's so interesting is in a lot of the clips that you can watch or a lot of the things that I remember from Murphy Brown, It tracks so well with the criticism of the coastal liberal elite. She typifies that in a way of like, I'm educated and you're wrong and you're stupid and you're bigoted and you don't know. And if you get yourself educated and get out of your podunk tiny little town, like she... Watching some of these things back now, I'm like, oh, I love that at the time, but now I totally see where that like, coastal, liberal, elite hate comes from because she typifies it
0: to a T. Sure. Do you think that was intended partially to be a foible or are we always supposed to be on her side with that kind of stuff?
1: Yeah, I think we're absolutely supposed to be on her side with that kind of stuff. uh, Like I would liken it to, I'm a huge West Wing fan, Jay knows, but the way Jed Bartlett, the way Martin Sheen plays Jed Bartlett as like, I don't have to apologize for being from, you know, New Hampshire or wherever he's from. Or Vermont, or something, and being a Rhodes Scholar and being sure. highly educated. I am all of those things, and I don't need to dumb myself down so that the local yokel can vote for me. They should strive to know more.
0: Yeah. But nonetheless, you see how she kind of embodies that counterculture and Candace Bergen herself. I'm not super familiar with her, but I know that she was in movies. She was in movies with Elliot Gould and stuff in the 60s and 70s where they would sort of typify that smart, you know, subversive academe, you know, a sort of uh, professorial hippie. And uh, so she was good casting, good sort of meta casting as Murphy Brown. And I can totally see, even though you wouldn't necessarily think of... Murphy Brown and Jack Hay as being bedfellows. I could totally imagine whether it's the fictional character Murphy Brown or the real life Candace Bergen reading about this Paul Rubin scandal in the newspaper and like picking up the phone and going like, "Give me this Rubens guy. I think maybe I think we could help each other out here." Well, you know.
1: so I was wondering if it was even a deeper connection than that. Um, so. Long running gag in Murphy Brown is that she can never get a, an assistant, a secretary that is worthwhile, right? Mm-hmm. So she, like in many episodes, there's some bumbling person or some ridiculous person on her desk, like who is supposed to be her assistant who does nothing to help and generally impedes whatever it is Murphy's trying to get done. And then that got taken even further to where then it became this like great joke to watch her fire them because she would get to have one of her big impassioned speeches, but instead of being about something substantial, Substantive, it was just about the like ridiculous incompetence of this person, so that is a long running gag. Well, Gary Marshall plays the owner of the network,
0: yeah. Gary Marshall, Murphy Brown, always plays the boss. He in a league of their own. He's like the owner of the thing. He plays in in the, in Louis. And any time he shows up, he's the head of the network or the president of the company. I mean, or but
1: he's Gary Marshall. He's been the head of. Yeah. so many things for so many years it totally. totally fits but so if i'm thinking back to mork and mindy mm-hmm. gary marshall like yeah. that's a, a gary marshall show spin off of a happy days gary marshall show sure. right so paul rubens starring in mork and mindy in 1981 connection there with gary marshall fast forward 1995 Gary Marshall star, guest starring in Murphy Brown as the owner of the network, who does he tap to come in as his nephew that he has to find a job, and so he puts them on the secretary desk of Murphy Brown, yeah. Paul Rubens. He is introduced as this dummy nephew, can't get his life together, can't hold down a job, gets fired from everything he ever does. He's silent for like, the entire first scene and a half that he's in, he's just silent and you're just waiting. You're like, oh my God, is the peewee voice going to come out again? Is that yeah. what it's going to yeah, be? Should, and it isn't.
0: Yeah. We should say this whole presentation of him is completely different. You know, like this is just like normal, buttoned up, like, you know, like you're looking at a normal guy. He's
1: wearing a gray suit. And a red
0: tie. It's funny though. He's not
1: wearing a red bow tie, but he is wearing a light gray suit that's not tight and like the normal peewee suit not at all. It's like a normal '90s thing. It's uh, not a bow tie, but I noticed it and it like I I clocked it right away. I was like, sure. oh, they put him in a in a light gray
0: suit. That's right. Well, what I noticed was tie. that to me, he looked. uh like a normal guy like yeah. it looked like he this was a is a 90s dude. So the whole first act is uh the Murphy Brown gang sort of dealing with the fact that they have to hire this nephew that they assume is going to be kind of a dummy and that Murphy doesn't want to deal with and yeah he's presented as just, as just kind of a nothing at first.
1: Right. So he ends up on her desk and Murphy's like, "Oh great. Well, don't you worry." You know, everybody, because the first thing the crew, like everybody else on the news crew, says is, Oh man, this guy's going to be a spy. Like, he's got to be. You know, what else? Why else would he put him here? There's a hundred different shows at this network they could put him on. So he's got to be a spy. So Murphy's like, Don't worry. I'll, I know how to get rid of assistance. Believe me. Um, And gives him the most crazy tasks that need to be done by the next day, right? She
0: does. She Miranda Priestleys him, you know, when Miranda has Anne Hathaway. uh, She says, "Get me the unpublished Harry Potter book, right? Thinking like, who could possibly do that? Yeah. But Murphy's version of it is, go back through the records of every tape of our show and record how many times I say the word the.
1: And then go to the Library of Congress and reference every single mention of a man named smith or jones and catalog it write it down and bring those records to me so then the next morning he's asleep on his desk and she's like ha 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 i got him and she wakes him up and she fires him and he says okay i you know completely understand miss brown here are you know the two boxes uh, that have the whatever stuff from the Library of Congress, the rest are in your office, you know, meaning there's hundreds. And then, by the way, you said the, you know, 47,000 times. And Murphy's eyes are like, Well, now, maybe I was a little too hasty, and I think I'm going to be willing to give you a second chance, but, you know, it's a very slim margin that I'm giving
0: you this chance. You're on thin ice, but yeah, she's obviously impressed that he completed the tasks that were designed to be impossible, and then he immediately starts stepping things up. So the first thing he does, he gets her out of computer class, right? He goes... The computer department called, but don't worry, I uh, I got you out of the class they wanted you to take, which I just love. That's just another one of those sign of the times. He sort of wants to be her Gary from Veep, right? Or her Smithers. He wants to be like her super on the ball, like sycophantic right-hand man. But then he becomes Chucky from Child's Play, right? In Child's Play, Chucky always like, He'll kill the people that are like causing trouble for the little kid that he belongs to, you know, and make it look like an accident. Like he becomes this almost fiendish you know, like sort of attack dog that, uh, you know, everybody's scared of.
1: Absolutely. And so he secures a parking spot. Murphy makes mention that she likes Jim's parking spot better than hers. So he secures Jim's parking spot for her by scraping off Jim's name and etching in Murphy's. I guess uh, Miles, who's the executive producer, has denied a $735 Expense report on for Murphy, and um, now that exact amount was deducted from his last paycheck, and the check was on her desk. Frank, who is a reporter, mm-hmm. and Murphy are both going for the same big break in a story, which I don't know. Maybe it's different at national newsrooms, but in like the little newsrooms that I worked in, (laughs) we all, like, you weren't hunting down stories independent of one another. You weren't trying to compete with your own colleagues. That
0: seems like something made for TV. So
1: the Paul Rubens character did something shady and slashed all of Frank's tires when he was on his way to go meet with the source so that Murphy could get there first and break the story. And then that night at the show, like in the studio, he has rearranged everybody's seats so they're lower than Murphy's, and Murphy has a spotlight as the show is starting.
0: Yeah. And so Murphy likes Andrew. That's Paul Rubin's character. She likes him as her... Secretary, yeah. now the problem she's
1: like, I've never had somebody so effective. Are you kidding me? But she also isn't seeing a lot of the underhanded things.
0: Yeah, but I get the impression she wouldn't necessarily mind those things. The problem is that Gary Marshall's character, Mr. Lansing, wants him back now. He's discovered that his nephew's secret superpower is this Machiavellian scheming and sabotaging. And so he's like, Oh, I didn't know he could do that. Never mind. You know, he's, he's coming with me. He wants to use him to figure out how to get ahead in the ratings. We're going to have a fun joke that's going to pay off in the tag at the end, where they're like, you know, we're getting beaten in the ratings by Seinfeld. What can you do about that? So... What does Murphy do to keep him, or does she?
1: She doesn't. She says, you know, he uh, Gary Marshall's like, I can offer you somebody from the pool. She's like, no, thanks. And he's like, well, why don't you take my, you know, secretary, who is a, another character actress that appears in lots of things. She always plays like a little old lady, usually nice. In this one, she's like cigarette smoking and surly. But, you know, Murphy's like, no, thanks. I'd rather take my chances with the pool. So I don't, like, at the end of this episode, it isn't clear that she does get to Keep him. Maybe right. he goes out on loan to her on some other episodes because I think he has. You said he has more than yeah. this well, one. Well, we episode.
0: know he does stick around as a character, but I guess we don't know what exactly happens beyond this episode.
1: At the end of this episode, though, he is now working for his uncle and doing like his shady dealings, but under the protection of the big mucky mucks at the network, not just the reporters who his tactics were going to get in trouble.
0: Yeah. So our taste of that is under the credits, after the story is wrapped up, we get like a wide angle shot of you know, like a California highway or something where a car is going out of control, about to drive off a cliff or whatever, and we hear this, like, ridiculous Seinfeld impression. Some guy going like, oh, no, I can't control my car. What's the deal with cars anyway? Brakes, why do we have them? Ah. And it's this, like, pot shot at Seinfeld that just comes out of nowhere. It I'm was like, great. And
1: the underscoring to that is some guy doing, like, the...
0: Like yeah, the funny little like, yeah, like the
1: mouth sounds that created the Seinfeld theme song.
0: Yeah. So it's it's just funny to look back on this and see how, yeah, you know, in the scheme of things, it wasn't that long of a time that his his pornhouse debacle affected his career. And maybe you could argue it didn't even affect it that much at all. And it was just a sort of you know, a a headline. And so I just bring that up to say that, yeah, at the time, this would have been just a fun, intriguing little meta joke to have this character be played by him. Yeah. And well,
1: and what I think and what I have sort of always had in my head was that it actually was perfect timing. If you think about Like the kids that were kids that were watching Pee Wee's Playhouse when that started, right? So those of us that were the exact right age to jump on board with this thing that started in like 1985 on television, right? Or 1984 or something like that. So that was us. Like that was me. I was totally on board. And then around the time I would have been like aging out of cartoons because I'm going into middle school and I'm like, whatever, not watching the Saturday morning stuff, doing other things. It ended. And he went away because of some like sex scandal. That's kind of like, oh, that's like, perfect gossip for, uh, you know, like a middle schooler to be like, did you hear that Pee Wee Herman was touching his dick? You know, like, that's so great. And then he pops up in all these now as Paul Rubens in all these like, grown-up shows Mm -hmm. or Buffy the Vampire Slayer. You know what I mean? Like he pops up in these other things where it's like, oh my God, I loved that guy when I was a kid. And so it was like the trajectory of when Pee-wee had to go away was exactly perfect for me growing up and wanting to see some different things. So this man has been a beloved character, actor, my entire lifetime.
0: Yeah. And what you get in these later ones notably not in Murphy Brown, like we said, he's all kind of buttoned up and everything, but you get the grotesquerie, you know, in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, he's got the long hair and he's like, he's he's a vampire. He's right. like kind of a monster. Uh, and then in the Mystery Men, he's all weird and craggly and he's got this like weird acne and stuff. And then that kind of brings us to our next and final sort of main event show here. 30 Rock.
1: Season 1, Episode 12, Black Tie. Fun fact about this episode, when they were shooting it and like all season Tina Fey was calling it goodbye America because it's so random and absurd she was like our show's going to get canceled and this will be the nail in the coffin.
0: That's funny just because of how broad and silly this yep. thing. Yeah. <laughs> it's definitely one of the broader and sillier things, but what I would say is and we should say we're skipping ahead in time quite a bit. And I think we can happily say the the Sane on Paul Rubens is completely done now. And I think his involvement in this shows. even though this is early in 30 Rock's run, uh, 30 Rock was not a show that needed to prove itself. It sort of came out of the gate with Prestige, with Alec Baldwin, Tina Fey, and all that. They had these high profile guest stars from the jump. You had, you know, Aniston and Schwimmer. You had Carrie Fisher. You had, you know, all kinds of uh exciting guest stars. And so Paul Rubens, I think, was proudly and unashamedly just another one of the cool, high-profile, fun people that they brought in. And yeah, they they find very odd use for him. My note on it was to me this sort of smacks of the Austin Powers era of comedy. I feel like we get a lot of Gold Member esque shenanigans. Do you want to? What's the basic scenario we're we're talking about here?
1: So. Liz Lemon, Tina Fey's character, is invited by Alec Baldwin's character to the premiere social event of the season. It's another one of these. Jack Donaghy thinks it'll be good for his, like, protege Lemon to, like, interact with a higher class of people and so he's like I'll have wardrobe pull a dress for you he tries to do the whole um, pretty woman necklace in the box thing and it like it's it's right it's a great moment right he he like you know slams the box closed and she's instead of doing the big laugh like we're all expecting because it's the girl in the dress and whatever and the the necklace she's like ow why would you do And you've got uh, Jenna Maroney, you know, Jane Krakowski's character standing right there like with the big smile on her face, like seeing this all as a Cinderella moment and being like, oh my gosh, Jack wants to go on a date with you. And she's like, it's not a date. You're weird. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So that's part of it is that 30 rock is always puncturing any potential will they won't they, especially in these early ones. Right. They're always trying to say, will they won't they? No, they won't. No, Get they over won't. it. It's Get not that it. kind of thing.
1: Exactly. So anyway, so they've got they're going to something you know, Gerhardt Okay, No, hang on. I need birthday to, party. This
0: was an example of one of these things. I lack the historical and (laughs) geographical knowledge to know how much of this is a joke and how much is real. So you're
1: like Liz Lemon. You don't know about the Habsburgs.
0: They're going, he goes like, this prince stands to rule the Austro-Hungarian Empire. And I'm going like, is Austro-Hungarian a funny thing that they made up that sounds like a real thing or is it actually a real thing? (laughs)
1: Okay. So, history lesson for Jay and anyone who cares. Uh, the Habsburgs real ruling family of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They were intermarried with like Queen Victoria's children and the czars of Russia and all of that like all up until like running up until World War 1 that they were the monarchs of that region. And then World War One is when all of these people were assassinated or run off with the right. rising of... Yes.
0: So part of what they're tapping into is, you know, all of this aristocracy and stuff like you're saying, but also... I can only imagine the idea that in these royal bloodlines, you have historically some intermingling, uh, that that's maybe why we get the monstrosity that we do. Yes, here. that's
1: exactly what they're explaining. They're saying that so, because of all of the like hundreds of years of intermarriage, which was absolutely accurate, that he has all of these issues.
0: You end issues. up with. Yeah, a character that is basically like a ventriloquist dummy slumped into a chair or something, but some of him is a real person, (laughs) right? So
1: you've got Paul Rubin's head and maybe like a little bit of his shoulders. Um, One of his arms is his actual arm and hand. And his other one is like, if you ever watched uh, SNL where they did the Lawrence Welk, like the four sisters, and the last one was always Kristen Wig, like, and I'm your niece, you know, and yes, she yes. has the like baby hand yeah. kind of thing, and she's like yes, trying to like, catch bubbles. Yeah, with it's right, like the it's doll. exactly so it's a little doll's hand on the one hand, and then he's got like from Shrek the musical, Lord Farquhar's uh fake legs. So he is in this like wheelchair sort of thing. And he's able to, you know, manipulate somehow with his hand that's not an actual hand that's like hidden under the thing. He's manipulating his legs so he can like cross and uncross them for comedic effect. He uses his little doll hand, for, and they have—they've also got him in fake teeth. Yes. So his teeth are all like fake
0: eyebrows. Yeah. He's very. Fake everything. Yeah.
1: Lots of prosthetics and stuff, and he's in that pasty white, pale makeup again.
0: Yeah. So everything about him is wacky and over the top. And just to be crystal clear, if you don't remember this episode. This this whole sort of fancy event that Jack Donaghy is taking Liz Lemon to, it turns out to be this guy's birthday party or something. He is the sort of, you know, ultimately revealed to be the, the person of honor that this is all revolving around.
1: Right. So he is the last in the line of Habsburgs. That's what this storyline is all about, that he's the last in the line. And because of all of his like genetic deformities or whatever, he is not... Like, he'll be the end of the line, right? So, of course, Jenna wants to get an invite to this party, too. So she just sort of also puts on a pretty dress and sneaks in because she's like, all you have to do is walk in with confidence and be hot. And everybody will let you in. So she is trying to, like, have her own little Cinderella story and meet the prince. And then she realizes who the prince is when he's introduced by Will Forte.
0: Yeah, but sort of doesn't mind. Like, this is part of the whole dynamic of Jenna in general, you know, oftentimes Liz Lemon will be sort of against her will thrust into some sort of high society or showbiz situation or something that she finds distasteful or revolting in one way or another. And Jenna wants to be part of that. And so this is one of those things. And then... There's also Jenna's character is just sort of supposed to represent everything that's tacky and bizarre and superficial about these sort of show business types or, you know, everything that Tina Fey has sort of observed and been annoyed at over the years with the way certain women behave, I guess, in certain strata of society. And so, of course, for Jenna, finding out that this guy is, like, this nightmarish creature is basically cause for, like, momentary consideration and, uh, you know, ultimately not not a deal-breaker. Not a deal-breaker, ladies, uh, if you're a fan <laughs> of the later 30 Rock episodes.
1: <laughs> so, she is um, terrified, though, to find out that it's his 25th birthday.
0: Oh yeah. That, that gives her a moment of pause because she's sort of assuming that he's like 74. Because
1: he looks much older, but yeah. So then they bring out this big cake and they do the whole happy birthday thing and it's 25 and she's like, you're 25. And, but you know, Nothing comes of it because he dies at the end of the party anyway. (laughs) Yeah.
0: There's a few of those great thirty Rock turns of phrase uh, when he's explaining to her that he can't dance. He says, uh, my body does not produce joint fluid, (laughs) you know, and so that's the reason why he can only watch her dance. But yeah, it all comes to naught. Like you said, he dies. The guy drops dead. Pee-wee's character drops dead. They sort of solemnly announce the line has ended and that's it like that's you know everybody has to go home
1: yeah jenna's uh cinderella dream out the window because you know she didn't lock him down before before he died and uh yeah
0: but yeah like you said this is one of the most broad moments in 30 rock but i think i accepted it i think people at large accepted it and part of that i think is paul rubens where it's just like hey you got the right guy for the job you know it's it's funny to see him in that context and i think that's part of what was fun about thirty rock is that it its tone was hard to nail down you know because it's it's a single cam show about a live sketch comedy show and so it's it's bringing in sketch comedy sensibilities into this more grounded Narrative, and so I feel like they would kind of bounce back and forth like that, you know, like Tracy having his hallucinations and stuff. Sometimes they would have musical moments, you know, like they would get weird from time to time, like a lot of sitcoms would.
1: Something I do want to mention before we leave 30 Rock is, you know, we often talk about shows like 30 Rock as hard to drop into. Mm -hmm. This one wasn't and i wonder if it has to do with it being in the first season where there was that expectation that people would be kind of dropping in at any point in this first season it was it was really enjoyable in ways that the other episodes with some of those i needed more context to yeah. really understand and feel like right where were we where were we in their stories here, and what has happened yeah, so far? that's true, whereas this one it was great, drop right in, have a blast, hilarious episode, lots of fun little guest star people, lots of fun moments for you know Jane Krakowski, who I love, and um the whole like messing with us with the will they won't they, and the pretty woman thing was hilarious, really well done.
0: Yeah, I think part of what you're talking about is because this black tie event that they go to is its own self-contained thing. I don't know that you would call this a bottle episode per se, but it's definitely one that has a very distinct, this is the one where they go to the Habsburg Palace or whatever and it's, and it's got its own thing. So yeah, let's talk briefly about some of the ones we haven't mentioned yet. You know, sort of the big one is this this episode of the Connors because it was his last appearance. Uh, he's looking pretty old in it. it. It's hard to find on streaming.
1: This one also, it's in sort of streaming limbo. I don't know what the deal is or why or whatever, but it seems from what I from what I could tell is that he really just has like one scene in the beginning of the episode. Um, if this is twenty nineteen, right? Isn't isn't he already kind of battling cancer, but not publicly? Or was that soon thereafter?
0: Any knowledge we have of that is is retroactive. Right. Um, and I haven't gone back and found out exactly when he was diagnosed or whatever. Yeah, it it seems like it's not a huge part of the story. He plays this photographer that comes from the local newspaper and is in this first scene of the show. And he's, he's taking pictures with them. And it honestly just kind of seems like a pleasant little pop-in.
1: Yeah. And I mean, again, couldn't watch much of it, so I don't know. And hopefully, you know, hopefully it was a really lovely moment for him. You know, I've said already that, like, he is a really talented character actor that has been able for, you know, nearly my entire lifetime to create funny, absurd, sort of avant-garde, subversive characters. And I, I don't know that this Guest, guest spot was that, but he brings that energy in everything he does. Whether he's like a misanthrope or a, you know a conniving guy on Murphy Brown, trying to like you know make his way in the cutthroat world of high level succession kind of network TV politics, mm. or on a like a children's television show, he's able to capture that sort of winking naughtiness. In a way that it doesn't hurt anybody's feelings, but it still is pointing a finger at something. And I think you said earlier, you were like, you know, I don't really get Pee Wee. I don't get what it is. I don't know what the joke is. But he is pointing at something. It's just the minute you say, oh, he must be pointing at that, he's pointing at something else. And I think that's the whole deal of it. And he did that. I, that may just be who he is, right? Because he was doing that in his characters that weren't Pee Wee. He is that kind of guy.
0: Yeah. And it's also interesting to contemplate how, again, at that time, it's not like now where there's all kinds of absurdist comedians and figures that I'm interested in and a fan of, but because of the internet and social media and podcasts and stuff like I get to know them and like I have access to them and I can sort of, you know, I have so much like information to deal with that I can parse it and sort of understand what the deal is. But back then it was like, you've got a couple movies, you've got a Saturday morning cartoon, you've got, you know, like maybe a few write-ups in the papers, like some interviews he did, some talk show appearances. And it's kind of up to you to figure out like what you make of this guy. The only other thing I wanted to talk about briefly was just thinking about this idea of being a performer in the 80s and 90s. This sort of comedic figure that was sort of like this like over-the-top character that was the sort of brand that you could plug into different movies and shows and stuff. There were a couple other examples that I came up with.
1: Yeah, Ernest.
0: Yes, that's the big one. Ernest was like, okay, like that's that's a point of reference. Like Ernest was a similar thing. He started out as a TV commercial pitch man. And then someone was like, what if we made a movie of him? And then he was in the Saturday morning TV shows and stuff. And the other one, it's a little bit different, but Paulie Shore, he didn't have like, oh, here's my other name that I assume. But he had this very specific character that he did that was not his normal way of talking. It was a thing that he put on. Again, if you're too young and you don't remember, it was this crazy surfer dude thing that would weirdly break up words. So he'd go like, totally, you know, just like stop in the middle like he was on a bad, you know, intercom connection or something.
1: Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't translate well over uh, radio or podcast because it just sounds yeah. like there's a glitch.
0: But he was an example of something that he started out as a stand-up comic, then was an MTV VJ, and they started plugging him into movies in that character. Yes. And so, again, it's all a little bit of like apples to oranges to watermelons sort of thing, but just trying to think of the other figures like this. And I think we could say... No offense to Ernest, who I love very much and I think Ernest Goes to Camp was like the first movie that made me cry. But yeah, like clearly Kiwi and that legacy and and you know his presence was just like head and shoulders in another category over any of these other wacky figures that sort of occupied a similar space.
1: Yeah. Well, so and I wonder if that has more to do with, like you said, it's coming out of an improvisational comedy troupe. So it wasn't just Paul Rubens writing Pee Wee, although he was doing a a fair bit of it, but he had writing partners, Phil Hartman being Mm -hmm. one of them and, and, and others. And, uh, and then I think of um, like Mr. Bean Right. Oh
0: God, I hate that guy. I, but yeah, but
1: like that's a similar. I mean, yeah, you know, a no, similar definitely. thing coming out of that. What's his name? Ro- Rowan, Rowan Atkinson. Atkinson. Coming out of that, like improvisational comedy thing, creating this character, and then that character can be dropped into a bunch of other stuff. Yeah, I'm just trying to think of others that have that same sort of origin story that uh, have been able to go on to, like you said, be dropped in to all of these different things. Like you can drop him in a sitcom, you can put him on a kid's TV show. He could be a pitch man. He could- you know
0: who's been gunning for it for years is that damn flow from Progressive. <laughs> She's waiting for that flow goes to Hollywood movie. Well, and but it's just see, not they, happening. No,
1: but that's because they blew it. Geico did it first with the Cavemen show.
0: Yeah. You know, there are other examples of performers that that have had a similar sort of trajectory, But he's one of those guys, like, you know, if if the aliens come down or if you're trying to explain to somebody who didn't live through all this, like, what was the deal with with Pee Wee Herman, Paul Rubens? Like, it's just its own kind of thing that defies explanation.
1: Yeah, but it was pretty wonderful.
0: All right. Well, we'll miss you, Pee Wee. What are we talking about next week?
1: Next week, we're doing our top five Favorite TV show theme songs. And our lists are a surprise to each other, so we're not giving you a preview, but we hope you're thinking about the ones you might want to hear.
0: That's right. Favorite TV theme songs next week. And until then, we will consider this segment of the sitcom study concluded. Thank you for listening to The Sitcom Study. Tell us what you think or share your own TV tropes and topic ideas by sending a self-addressed stamped email to sitcomstudypodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook or Instagram. And if you like the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcast app. It helps us boost those precious Nielsen ratings. The Sitcom Study is recorded in front of a live studio dog.